Isn't it good to be in God's house this morning? Man, I love coming to God's house, especially our church, to worship. We are so blessed with the worship team, and I'm grateful for them leading us week in and week out. I want to welcome those who are watching the service today online. We're glad to have you as a part of our service. For those of you who do not know me, my name is David Johnson. Susan, my wife, and I are members here. And uh, we love uh, our church, and Pastor Kenneth will occasionally give me an opportunity to come and teach God's Word in his absence, and so uh, today is the day. So you've, you've drawn the short straw, so I'm sorry about that, but you're stuck. Uh, but anyway, we're, we're glad that you're here, and uh, if you have your Bibles or your iPhones or your iPads or whatever you get to the Word of God on, we'd love for you to turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we're not going to jump right in, but we will be there in just a few minutes. I've entitled the message today, A Revealing Reality, A Revealing Reality. I hope that the majority of you, if not all of you, are, I hope you're in some kind of a small group. Uh, I know that it has been life-changing for my wife and I, for my family, as we've done life together with other believers, as we've studied God's Word, and as we've prayed for one another and all those kind of things. And we started a small group on Sunday nights back in March, uh, and we started with the book of James. Uh, As you guys know, James is an amazing book. It's a deep book. It's a book that just will... Uh, teach you so much, challenge you in so many ways. And so we were just sort of studying along and uh, as I often like to say, minding my own business. When I came to a couple of passages that sort of jumped out at me, when I got to the end of James chapter four and the beginning of James chapter five, It was the clearest two places in the scripture that close together that dealt with the two different categories of sin. And so uh, I want to, matter of fact, I want you to go ahead and write down these two different categories. Many of you would be able to fill these in, some of you maybe not. But so you have the sin of omission. That's point number one. I hope you have your outlines if you go ahead and take those out. Uh, So The first sin, we see the sin of omission, which is not doing what is right or failing to do as instructed in the Bible. We're not going to read James 5, 1 through 6 or 7, but we clearly see the sin of commission in that section of Scripture. And the sin of commission is a willful act of doing something that violates God's command. But for today... I want us to look at uh, one of the sins of omission, and we see that here in James, and it's the perfect uh, intro to why God, I believe, led me to John chapter 15, and why God wants me to teach John chapter 15 today. So beginning in verse 13 in James, it says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So James is speaking to the rich, and he's giving them a warning. 
Now, you may be going, well, David, that leaves me out. I'm not rich. Let me just tell you, I beg to differ. I've traveled all over the world. I've been and seen poverty like no poverty on the planet. We in America are rich. We need to pay attention to what James is saying here. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So you've made all these plans and you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist. Your translation may say a vapor, but you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in arrogance. Wow, do we ever live in a culture filled with that. All such boasting is evil, James says. So here is the perfect definition in the scripture of the sin of omission. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. So what were they failing to do? They had made all their plans. They had gone into the city. They had started a business. They were looking to get profit out of that. But what did they fail to do? They failed to seek the will of God to say, Father, is this actually what you have for me to do? Is anybody in this room guilty of that other than me? Listen, I've gone headlong into all kinds of things, all kinds of projects, all kinds of things, only to find out that was not where God had for me to be going. And so James is saying, hey, listen, you are to be seeking the will of the Father in everything you do. So I want you to write this down. So the, the specific sin that we saw here is one of the most revealing realities in the Western church today and in the Western mindset today is the sin of self-reliance. The sin of self-reliance. So they weren't relying on, they weren't trusting in, they weren't being dependent on the Lord. They were waiting out on their own to do this event. Now, we live in a culture that says to pull yourself by your bootstraps, and if it is to be, it is up to who, church? Me. If it is to be, that's the culture we live in. And yet, God's word is very clear that we're not to be self-reliant. So as I begin to think about, well, what's the opposite of that in Scripture? Where can I go and study the opposite. What does total depend, dependence look like? So God led me to John 15. Didn't know that I was going to be teaching this to you today because I thought it was for me. And yet God said, here's what I want you to do. So we're going to look at the seventh I am statement. For those of you who are students of the scripture, you've studied the book of John, I want you to know that Jesus in the book of John makes seven definitive I am statements. And we're gonna, we're gonna study the seventh and final one today. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And today we're going to see that not only is he the vine, but he's the true vine. 
So guys, I have a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to go ahead and apologize up front. So soup up your pen or pencils, okay, because we need to game on, get this done. God gave me more than to say than I have the time to say it in. So here we go. Number one, I want you to write this down. Uh, Jesus is the true vine and the only one that can make us clean. Jesus is the true vine and the only one that can make us clean. So let's look at verses one through three. So Jesus says right out of the gate, he doesn't just say, I'm the vine. He says, I'm the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken. Now this phrase, in me, is a very important phrase in John's writing. It appears 16 times. In every time, in every instance, in every context, it has to do with those who are in fellowship with Christ, those who are in a right standing before Christ. In, in verse 3, he uses the phrase, already clean. So Jesus is speaking here to believers. He's speaking to his apostles. He's, a, he's speaking to his disciples. He was doing it to them in the first century. It's also relevant to us in the 21st century because we are followers of his. He's not speaking to make someone clean. He's speaking to those who have, in the past tense, in the text, already been made clean. So he's speaking to believers. So Jesus says, I am the true vine, which would imply what, church? That there's a false vine. That's right. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what or who was the false vine. We go back to the Old Testament, we're able to see that. So in Psalm 80, it says in there, the writer of that Psalm says that God brings the vine out of Egypt. So who had been in Egypt for 400 years? The nation of Israel. So he's talking about the nation of Israel as the vine. And then Jeremiah writes about this same vine in chapter two, where it says, God planted a choice vine from a pure seed, which is himself. So he gave them the law. He gave them the perfect sacrificial system. He gave them everything they needed to be in a right relationship with God. But Jeremiah goes on to describe them as a wild vine. How about that? So Isaiah jumps in in chapter five and says this wild vine, the nation Israel, produces wild grapes. Now you're sitting there with this puzzled look on your face. Like, David, are you sure about that? Well, I challenge you to go and read Psalm 80 and Jeremiah 2 and, and Isaiah 5 and you'll see that's true. So here we have Jesus, the true vine, who says, and I want you to write this down, because apart from Jesus, it is impossible to be reconciled to God. God sent his son, the true vine, 
the vine that gives life, that gives it everlasting, that gives it abundant, and that there's no other way unto the vine dresser than through the vine. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through who, church? Through me. There's no universalism. There's no all roads lead to a right relationship with God. There's only one road that leads to God. There's only one person that leads to God. There's only one vine that leads to God, and it's Jesus Christ. He is the true vine, and there's no other way into the Father. There's no other way to be made in a right relationship. There's no other way to have your sins forgiven than through the true vine. Amen? Because that is the foundational truth and belief of the Christian church. He is the one who gives us life. No man comes to the Father except through him. His sacrificial atoning work on the cross. Without the shedding of his blood, there is no remission of sin. Jesus is the only one that can give us life. And if you're here today... And you, at this point, haven't accepted Jesus, then you're not connected to the vine. But I have good news for you. You can connect to the vine today. The second thing I want you to write down is this, and that the God is the vine dresser, as we see in this text. And the only one capable of caring for the vine and pruning the branches. God is the vine dresser and the only one capable of caring for the vine and pruning um, the branches. So we see here, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch, there it is, in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So in this metaphor, the father and the son, y'all pay attention to this, occupy different roles. Jesus, as he does all over the scripture, he took a subordinate position to the Father. We see this because he's 100% man and he's 100% God. And there are times that Jesus gives up his divinity in the midst of his humanity so that he can be subordinate to the Father. He does that right here. Because he is the vine and he says, the father is the vine dresser. What does the vine dresser do for the vine? He cares for him. So look at this positionally. So when Jesus prayed, here's the vine praying to the vine dresser. So the vine seeked guidance from the vine. He interceded on the behalf of others to the vine dresser. He even asked the vine dresser if the cup could be removed from him. The vine said to the vine dresser, yet not my will, but yours be done. How can that be anything but a subordinate position? Jesus came up under as the vine, when he rose early, while it was still dark, and went to pray, the vine seeked strength and power and all those things from the vine dresser. 
Now, this same vine dresser cares for us as his branches. He also prunes us and he uh, disciplines us. So let me ask you this question. So did Jesus need pruning? Did Jesus need disciplining? No. Jesus is perfect. Jesus was sinless. Jesus still came up under the leadership of the Father in those moments. And yet we, let me just speak for me, I occasionally need to be disciplined. I occasionally need to be pruned. I occasionally find myself, I'm sure this is not true for you, but I occasionally find myself in the weeds. I occasionally find myself outside of God's will. I, I occasionally find myself making poor choices. Am I, I mean, am I the only one in the room or can I at least get a nod? Okay, excellent. I just wanted to make sure, you know, I was not the only sinner in the room. So the truth of the matter is we need pruning. Does anybody like to be disciplined? No. Did I like it when my dad came in there with that really skinny belt and whipped me on my, you know, my naked legs and those whelps popped up? Did I like that? No. Was it good for me? You better believe it was. Every time my dad ever whipped me, he had tears running down his face. But he, he lovingly disciplined me. Why? Because he knew that I needed that instruction so that I could understand what God had for me as a young Christian man. And so we see that here. We see God disciplining us. So here's the couple of questions of the day. What happens when a believer is not bearing fruit? That's a, that really is the, the question of the day. The second question is kind of, uh, kind of connected to that, and that is, how do you define fruit? So many theologians and many Christians would define fruit as evangelism. They would define fruit as disciples making disciples. Is that fruit, church? You better believe it is. Is that the only fruit, church? No. We have nine things that are called what? The fruits of the Spirit. So we as believers in living a fruitful life, yes, we should be sharing the reason for the hope that we have, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. But yes, we should be living our life in such a way that when people look at us and when God sees our life, he sees that we're living out, we're bearing the fruits of the Spirit. So the question is, what happens to a believer at that moment in their life who's not bearing fruit? So we see this, and man, so many people get this out of context and get this wrong. So I'm going to try to dial in and help us, I think, come to a conclusion as a group um, that this is what God's Word teaches. So very important to know, and most people don't know this. So when you look at John 15, verse 2, and you look at John 15, verse 6, both of those verses are talking about pruning, and yet they're talking about pruning at a different life stage of the grape. Verse 2 is the spring pruning. Verse 6 is the fall pruning. And I want us to look at that because most people look at this part where it says, he takes away. 
that that Christian has lost their salvation. Let me tell you this morning, once you are saved, you are always saved. There's too much biblical evidence that talks about nothing can pluck you out of the hand of God. I want you to understand once you're saved, you are always saved. If he's writing to believers, and I believe he is, those who are in me, those who have been clean, he takes away. So what does he take away? This is what is so cool about the Greek language. We have to study the biblical languages because we can't get a full understanding of a word that we read in English. So it's, it's important for us to see this because this word in the Greek is iro. Iro not only means he takes away, but it also means to raise up. It means to lift up. So let me give you an, ag, uh, uh, an agrarian lesson today, okay? So in the spring, the vine dressers would come into the vineyard. The branches had become filled with green leaves. They had gotten heavy. They laid over on the ground. When they laid over on the ground, dirt would get on the bottom of the leaves, a parasites would attach to the bottom of the leaves. Even some of the branches would put down roots into the soil, which was, I mean, a death wish for a branch to ever bear fruit. So what did the vine dresser do? He raised up the branch. He lifted up the branch. He took away the branch from that environment. And he cleaned the bottom of it, picturing us repenting, his pruning, his preparation. He attached it to the arbor. Why? So that that branch would have the greatest opportunity to be able to bear fruit. So not only that, he pruned some of those tender branches that already had some fruit on them. The branch would have been green, yet his pruning was light. His pruning was to help that branch that was already producing fruit to do what, church? To produce more fruit. And so when we look at what's happening in in verse 2, we have to understand fully, what does he take away? Does he take away salvation from the believer? Certainly not. What does he do? He takes that believer out of that situation and attaches him to the arbor. Now look at verse 6, because this is where most people just kind of go round the bend and off, you know, the chart. So verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Most people say, well, wait a minute, they're being thrown into hell. No, no, no. That is taking that totally out of context. And you have to understand how this system works. So when the vine dresser would come to the vine, he would find branches that were dead, and he would cut that branch off. Now, he might have to cut it back all the way to the vine, but sometimes it was just part of the branch was dead. He would cut that off. What does that symbolize? That symbolizes a dead witness. That symbolizes our lives 
are as useless to God and the kingdom as these dead branches are when we allow sin to overtake our lives. So one of the truths about grape branches is the wood's good for nothing else but burning. You couldn't make furniture out of it. You couldn't, there was no wood product that you could make. The only thing you could do was burn it. And so what Jesus is saying here to those of us who are believers is there are times when God's going to tenderly pick you up and attach you to the arbor. And there's times when he's going he's to prune you so strong that it's going to hurt because you have gotten so far away from him and his truth. So I want you to write this takeaway down. This takeaway is God is loving and caring, but he will not be mocked. Make no mistake, you may be in a pattern of sin right now and you think you've gotten away from it. Let me just tell you, God will not be mocked and he will prune you in his timing. Number three, I want you to write this. We are the branches and cannot bear fruit apart from the vine. We are the branches and cannot bear fruit apart from the vine. Look at verses four and five. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what, church? Absolutely nothing. At the vortex of these two verses is that word abide. Uh, in the Greek, that word is meno. It means I stay in a given place, state, or relation. It means not to depart from or become another. It means to endure. It means, and this is so powerful, to have unbroken communion with. And then yet Jesus says to his followers then, and by the way, his followers now, because you guys are, you know, thick-headed and stiff-necked. He said, let me just remind you again, I'm the vine. You are the branches. I'm the one who gives life. I'm the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father. I'm the one who went to the cross. I'm the one who went to prepare a place for you. I'm the one who's coming again. I'm the one who is the Son of God. Let me just remind you that. And so he does that. So, as a boy and as a teenager, I spent a lot of time on a farm. Um, every Sunday we went to the farm, which is where my grandparents were, and every summer I spent a huge part of my summer at the farm. At a young age, I learned some valuable lessons about farming and, quite frankly, about life and, quite frankly, about the Christian life. So I learned that when you prepare the soil correctly and you plant the right seed at the right depth, the right distance apart, and God gives you the water that you need, the seed will come up. And I also learned that not only will the plant come up, but the weeds will come up too. You know, don't you just love Adam and Eve? 
the weeds came up. I wish I had a dollar for every coffee weed that I pulled as a boy because I pulled a bunch of them. But I did learn that if you prepare the soil and you plant the seed and it gets water and you, and you care for it and you pull the weeds, you can realize that there is going to be a yield. You are going to have a harvest. It is a given if all those things hit right and you plant corn and you do everything right, you're gonna yield corn. Well, the same thing was happening in the first century because this culture understood Jesus' example. It was relevant to them. They knew if the vine was healthy, and that the branches were connected, and they were tied up to the arbor, and they were cleaned of its parasites, and watered and pruned, it would bear fruit. They also knew if the branch in any way was disconnected or separated, it would bear no fruit. That was a given, just like this statement, we are the branches and cannot bear bear fruit apart from the vine is a given. The fruit can only come from the vine. Matter of fact, we see that all over the Old Testament. One, Hosea 14, verse eight says, from me comes your fruit. I want you to write this down because here's the takeaway for me. Every gift and every ability we have has been given to us by God. Every gift and every ability we have has been given to us by God. So this is the question. If you think in zeros and ones, which means you think in computer language, or if you're a great communicator, or you're a great athlete, or you're logical, or you're a problem solver, or you have the gift of administration, or you're good with numbers, or you're good with music, or you're good in the medical field, if you're good at anything, who gave you that ability in the first place? God did. You gotta hang on a second, David. I, you know, I practiced and I went to school and I got a degree and I'm doing all these things. Well, listen to me. God expects you to take what he gave you and use it to the fullest. He's the one who gave you the gifts and abilities. He's the one who allows you to think the way you think. It's all a gift of his. So if we're truly abiding, then we're not in this self-reliant mode. So I want you to, on number four, and we're getting ready to, to sort of wrap up here, number four, abiding disciples who stay in constant contact with the vine can expect the Lord to answer their prayers. So Jesus walks right through this. He gets to verse seven, and then he throws out a verse that's tripped believers up all over the place. So this is what he said. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Sounds kind of name it, claim it, doesn't it? You can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So Jesus gives us this if and then statement. If you abide in me, 
If you do as I instruct you, if you stay in that given place, if you do not depart from me, if you maintain unbroken communion, if you allow my words, my instruction, my precepts, my truths, my statutes to be in you, then you can ask whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. So let me ask you this question. If you've done all of that, are you going to ask the Lord to do something according to your will or to his will? Because let me tell you, if we're connected to the vine like that as branches, when we're connected to the truth of God, the ways of God, the will of God, what matters to God, then our prayers are different. Let me ask you, do you ever pray and you feel like your prayers don't get above the ceiling? Do you ever pray and you go, man, God is silent? Maybe you're not connected well enough to the vine. Maybe you're not abiding enough to the vine. Because if we do, then the prayers we answer or ask are different. So here's the takeaway. God answers our prayers when they are according to his will. Jesus himself prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Why we wouldn't do the same thing? Listen, I've stood over people who are dying on their deathbed. I've stood over people who are battling cancer. I've stood over people in all different situations of their life and pray for healing. But let me tell you, what needs to be at the end of every one of those prayers is not my will, but yours be done. Because there are two kinds of healing. There's physical healing that's for the temporary, and then there's permanent healing, that's spiritual healing that says, when we move from this life to the next life, there is no more pain, there is no more suffering. That church family is perfect healing. One that, quite frankly, I'm looking forward to. So if Jesus was all about the Father's will, why wouldn't we be too? So here's the action point. And guys, if we could get this right, we would see some amazing things individually and collectively. So here's the action point. Stay connected to the vine at all times and in every way. Read the word. Spend time in prayer. Be in accountability relationships. Come to church. Gather together. Do all the things we do. You know, serve. Go across the street, across the ocean. Stay connected to the vine. If we do that, then and only then will we understand that it is all about him and none about us. Then and only then can we move from self-reliance to total dependence. Then and only then will we be able to bear much fruit. 